0: Well, good morning again, church. It's good to see you in the temple of the living God, in the house of God, the place where we come to meet with our King. Our sermon series over the pilgrim songs, or the Psalms of Ascent, continue on today with the 129th Psalm. A little recap again, if you haven't been here or just checking in online, the Psalms of Ascent, uh, three times why these group cluster of Psalms exist, is that the Lord said three times a year all the males were to appear before the Lord in Jerusalem with gifts and sacrifices to offer up to the living God. No one was to appear empty handed. They were to worship the living God. I mean, think of what that really requires of you, you means you have to leave your home. Think of, think if you're in a village a eh, in the middle of Israel somewhere and all the males leave. Now the women and children, of course they could come. We know they did, but imagine if they couldn't or something like that. Like, Would you imagine if your town was, you just left your house and all your neighbors are leaving, everybody would leave. Who's going to watch the house? Who's going to watch the goods? You know, it takes an act of trust to leave all that behind to go and worship. It's a big deal. So you would trust God. You'd leave your homes. You would leave your towns vacant. You'd make your pilgrim's journey up to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, to the house of the living God, to worship. And it's in this context of journey to Jerusalem that singing these Psalms developed, but to those who were not willing to worship the living God, the Lord says that those failing to do so, those failing to keep the Passover or the other feast, the three pilgrimage feasts, he said that that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. Numbers 9, 13. So not going to worship at one of these three feasts, was a capital offense so to speak it cuts you off from god's people and usually that's shorthand for you were put to death not worshiping was not an option it was to forfeit your salvation so to speak it was despising the inheritance and the goodness of god he gave you these houses he gave you this land you remember he separated the land of israel by a lot and by tribe like it was a gift a gift from god and you were despising that gift and that grace so keep that in mind today about the consequences of not worshiping, because this psalm is we're going to read. The, the first few verses are going to be heavy on the pilgrims, but most of the psalm is the consequences of not worshiping. So let's stand today. We're going to read Psalm 129 together. If you can and are willing, if you can't, it's okay. You can still participate and read from your seat. But these were sung together. These were psalms. So let's read together loudly and proudly with some good cadence. Psalm 129, we're using the ESV. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we just read your word as your people. We ask that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Help us read this in light of the New Testament and how it explains the faith. Interpret this passage for us this morning, Holy Spirit, and bring us closer to Jesus because you say that the word of God is what shapes us and molds us to be more like the Son of God. We pray that you would do great things today for your namesake, Jesus. Um, Build us up in the faith. Build us up in encouragement. Build us up in the truth. We need you, Lord. If you don't show up and interpret the word today, it's just going to be us reading out loud for no reason. But you promise that faith comes by hearing. Build us in the faith today. We trust you. And God's people said, So as noted, we just read it. Our psalm this morning splits into two major portions: verses one through three, then four through eight. There's that clear transition from the pilgrims to those who are rejected by the Lord. Uh, But I say this because I struggled this week to really find the connection or the unifying idea that binds these two separate ideas together. Uh, And it wasn't really until I started to write the sermon this week that it kind of came, like it all fit together at the end. So. What I'm really trying to say is this is not accurate. So if you have one of these, what's going to be on the screen and what's printed like last week won't be entirely accurate. But as I really meditated and prayed over this, the main point of Psalm 129 really seems to be this. The thing that joins these two sections together is our main point for this morning is that God vindicates his persecuted people. God vindicates his persecuted pilgrims, those going to worship and by vindicate, what I mean is that it shows that we're in the right with God, how we're innocent and we're loyal towards him. You could even say like God justifies his people. He, us going to worship him and him cutting off the wicked proves that we're in the right with God. That's what this psalm is about. And we're going to see because it kind of creates a contrast between the faithful pilgrims and those who do not worship. And those who do not worship do not have a pleasant end. But those that do will suffer an afflicted life. And this is because what I mean when God vindicates his people, why this is true is because you are either making the painful pilgrimage, accepting your affliction as God's chosen people and maintaining loyalty to the Lord, our God, or you are not. It's the Bible presents the faith as a binary system. You're either in or you're out. There's no like happy and loving Jesus. There's no like we're common law married to Jesus. That's not, that's not a thing in the Bible. You're either on the team Oh, you ain't on the team. You're either playing or you're not. There's, no, there's just in or out, light and dark. Like God gives us very clear binary choices. This psalm is one of those ideas today because there's no neutrality to God's kingdom. There's no bystanders in this war. Everybody's going to pick a side, and you already have. You either love the Lord, endure suffering, and make your way to Jerusalem trusting the Almighty and maintain fidelity or loyalty to him, Or you hate Zion, and you do not worship the living God. You despise his grace, and those who do not worship in spirit and truth are cut off from God's holy presence. And this is true throughout the whole Bible, church. If you know the scriptures, you know what I'm talking about. You're either going to follow the Lord Jesus, or you're going to hate and despise the gospel. And those who do follow the Lord Jesus, those whom the world hates are those whom God vindicates or are proven that we're in the right. You could even say we're, it's a common phrase today to say, you ever heard someone say, like, be on the right side of history? You know, usually in, in the context of, like, being pro-gay marriage or whatever, like, be pro-freedom and all that, be on the right side of history. The Bible says to be on the right side of history, you've got to be on Team Jesus because you on the wrong side of history. Everything else is peripheral. You're either on the right side of history of the garden or the wrong side of history of the garden. That's what this kind of psalm is talking about today. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear. There's so many choices from the selection, but God laid this scripture on my heart to clarify the point of why God vindicates pilgrims and the rest are cut off. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats he will place on his left. And then the king, remember this is Jesus talking about himself. Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was stranger. I was was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer the king saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? Like that doesn't make sense to them. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these brothers, the Christians, the church, you did it to me. How you treat and engage the church is a direct reflection of your service and love to Jesus. And then it continues on. Then the king will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also, the unbelievers, will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then the king will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Only the true pilgrims who worship the Lord, who seek Him out, who go to Zion, if you will, who make the journey, are vindicated at the end, who are proved in the right. And we just read Jesus says everyone's going to be separated on that day. There will be no mistakes on Jesus' account. He knows. He knows you, person, right now, whether online. He knows if you're on his side or not. He knows my heart if I'm on his side. And it will be revealed in that day. Do not doubt that. It will be shown who's in the right, those who belong to Jesus, those who have been baptized into his name, who worship in sincerity, those who are going to be proven innocent at the end. But until that day comes, when that final reckoning comes, affliction Persecution, pain, suffering, whatever word you want to use, that's going to be the norm for the church. That's the norm for the Christians. Because suffering has always been part and parcel to being a part of God's people. It's always normal for us. And that's our first preaching point, is that God's people are always persecuted. They're always under affliction. Something's always happening to us. I'm not saying good things don't happen in life, but the norm of the Bible is to be God's people is a life of affliction. Verses one through three, recap says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say like this communal understanding. It's all of us. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Think of this phrase, the plowers have plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Think of the, that vivid description of like being beaten and tortured. That's kind of what he's getting at using agriculture talk. And this verse is the pilgrim's slogan, this greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. It's the slogan of the church because the history of the church is filled with suffering. Think all the way back to the beginning, guys. Think all the way back to the very first martyr. Faithful Abel had his righteous blood spilled by wicked Cain. Think of Noah being surrounded by great evil to the point that God flooded the entire earth. Think of when our ancestors were slaves in Egypt under the rule of wicked Pharaoh. Think of the period of the judges when the Philistines and the pagans and the uncircumcised would dominate the people of God. Think of the time of the kings and the prophets when wicked kings were in charge and they would put idolatry in the temple. Think of the captivity and the exile in Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. Think of the time between the testaments when the evil powers, the remnants of Alexander the Great's empire after he died it Fractured, they still came into Israel and dominated the Jews. Think of the New Testament times when the Romans were masters over Israel. Think of the ministry of Jesus, persecuted by his own people. It says he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they put this Jesus to death. Think of the John the Baptist getting beheaded for calling out the evils of the day by Herod. Think of the apostles in the early church suffering as they participated in the Great Commission. Every apostle lost their life except, to our knowledge, John. Think of the church, and then think of our own tragic history after that time. Think of the European history, when the church began fighting itself, when Christianity became the norm, and Christian kings would war against other Christian kings, using the name of Christ for, like, crusades and all that. Think of how many Christians were killed by the Catholic church. They spilled their own brethren's blood for political gain and for power and land and wealth. And then think of the modern period, just the last couple hundred years, Christians in Burma, China, Eritrea, India, Iran, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Myanmar, places like these all across the globe. Christians are still getting killed or persecuted today. The persecution can be light and inconvenient, as in kind of like what we experience, you know, it's just, it's just frustrating if we're Christians sometimes to actually having your property confiscated. Think of if your government did not arrest terrorist groups that were bursting into your house. They'll condemn them publicly like, oh, yeah, ISIS is bad, but really, wink, wink, ISIS is good because they killed those Christians and get rid of them. I mean, it hasn't stopped. Think of the church and some of our liberals, like COVID. That was a crazy idea. Would you ever picture that a state like California would fine churches for being open? Like, and if they didn't have the money, you were shut down. Like, it was a big deal. If you know John MacArthur was like, we ain't closing down. And it was a big fight. Think of Canada. They put fences around churches and arrested pastors for holding services. That's crazy. But that's, again, persecution always exists. Affliction always exists in the church, in the life of our people, because the story of our people is one of suffering. And it's like this because it's Jesus' kingdom plan for us. The kingdom of God is not prosperity, wealth, and happiness. Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecution is identity with the kingdom of God. If you are in the kingdom of God, you suffer persecution. And the apostles tell us the exact same thing. It's so normal across the pages of scripture, you can't miss it. It emphatically even says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Like, that's normal, and that's been normal for Christians. But because we don't feel persecuted in our country, that's awesome, right? I am glad we can come today, and nobody's going to cut our heads off and arrest us. I know you're all grateful for that, too. But the many people across this world being baptized is a death sentence. Owning a Bible is a capital offense in some of these Islamic countries. Could you imagine if you lived in Afghanistan and someone set you on fire for being Christian? Pouring car battery acid on you and all that? It's twisted and evil. And this affliction is because once you lay hold of God's glorious promises, you are turning your back to the world, the flesh, and the devil. You're literally forsaking your citizenship of hell. And when you do that, it's like putting a big old target on yourself. Like, think of the rodeo clown. Think of those crazy people. Like, they dress and act, and they draw the attention to the bulls. When you confess Christ and are baptized and repent and be a part of the church, you're doing something like that. You're drawing attention to the change that has happened to you. You're, you're proving that your citizenship has been changed. And, guys, the kingdom of darkness does not like defectors. The kingdom of darkness does not like it when people turn from them and join the kingdom of light. They don't. They don't like traitors. And then the unseen forces of this world, all the demonic powers working through all the social pressures, will do whatever it can to break Christians through persecution and pressure to get them to turn back to the darkness. That's like the MO of our enemy. When you confess Christ, you're entering into a battle, you're drawing attention to yourself that you're a defector from the kingdom of darkness, and they will do whatever they have to do to draw you back. Jesus tells us in many parables that like, Think of the parable of the seed where he goes, uh, because of persecution and the love of money, many people will turn from me. He tells us that in the parables because it's true and the gospel doesn't bear fruit in their lives. So he warns us about falling away and he warns us that the devil comes for us and all that. And It's not supposed to be this um, like boogeyman idea. It's a reality. And Paul says we're to pray because there are these invisible powers and these things that work against the church and we're to pray about this stuff. Do not doubt the spiritual battle that's being waged for your soul every day, Christian. But our God is faithful. He's faithful in this pilgrim's path, this path of affliction. And this verse has a victory cry. It's already been sounded. He says, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. That's the victory cry of the church. Because God the Father fights for us. Jesus, it says, is praying for us right now. And the Holy Spirit indwells us. And the Blessed Trinity has given us this means to stay faithful, what we call the means of grace. How God creates and strengthens our faith to endure affliction. Things like prayer, the scripture, the sacraments, the church. He's given us all these things to keep us in the faith, to keep us in the fight, to keep us on that pilgrim's path. Telling you, when you start separating yourself and you wonder why you're getting lukewarm or cold, check yourself. When did you stop praying? When did you stop praying? When did you stop coming to church? When did you stop picking up the scriptures? When did you stop partaking of the sacrament? And you'll notice a clear pattern. And everybody who's ever walked away from the faith, those things, are, they're, they're void. They're not there. And when you stop participating in these things, you're just opening yourself up to fall away. But God has given us what we need and this, staying together as the church, staying together in these things, these means of grace, is how we do the pilgrim's path. We worship Christ together and we lean on one another as one people, one body. This is how the modern pilgrim makes his way to Zion. And only those who make the journey and stay true, as we said, the main point, are vindicated by God. Your life is not over. The fight will go on to the day you die. Will you endure to the end. That's kind of what we're talking about in this portion. But to those who do not make the journey, those who do not come to Christ and bow the knee, those who do not join us on this affliction path, they have no part in eternal life. They remain in the darkness. They have no hope. Our second preaching point, the wicked are cut off from God's presence. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backwards. Let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor bind the sheaves of his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. When you read these verses, the overwhelming impression is so abundantly clear. The wicked, those who refuse the one true king to give him honor, Respect and loyalty that this King Jesus deserves. They have no place with the saints. It begins with God affirming his righteousness. It says, The Lord is righteous. He is good. He is great. He is holy. He will not let the wicked prosper and dominate his people forever. And those who do not worship, who bow the knee to Jesus, he says, They're cut off from Zion. May they be turned back. Do you take that seriously? Those who do not come to Jesus on his terms, who do not join this pilgrim's path of affliction, they have no place. No place. And he uses three very vivid illustrations. He says they're like, we're in Kansas, it gets pretty hot. Remember the grass in the August at noontime when the sun is withered and dry and it's crunching under your feet? He says they're like that those who hate the church, those who hate Zion, those who hate worship, those who reject Jesus. And he ties it in. He's not only like their grass, it's like, I don't know anything about farming, but I'm sure someone here can affirm this truth. He says they're also like, he combines it with the idea of a harvester. Imagine if you went out to harvest after a lengthy season of planting and all your corn was rotted and dried out to the point it was no good. That'd be frustrating. Or any other crop. Imagine if it was just dead in the fields. He says the harvester can't even it in sheaves. He can't gather it. And he goes, there's no one even to bless them. They're not blessed, they're cursed. He goes, there's no one to say, bless you in the name of the Lord. There's no blessing. And he ties these three images in one long sentence to prove to us, like on the account of two or three witnesses, God says a truth is established. He gives us three clear examples of what the end of those who reject Jesus, who hate Zion, is like. What's going to happen to them? And it's true. And for some of us, that's our family, our friends, our co-workers. That's that's describing them, is it not? Does that break our heart for them, for mission? Because that's all of us at one time. That was all of us at one time until we came to the gospel. Do we have a burden for them? Even though they are the oppressors, he says. He cuts their cords. The idea of those outside of the kingdom will always persecute those who are in the end. The people that are hurting us and hate us, whether literally or physically, like now or not, that was all one of us. Could you imagine if you were that Christian in Iraq or Afghanistan and your family turned you over for being Christian and you're looking at them and you say, Jesus, forgive them, have mercy on them, bring them into your kingdom because that's the heart of Jesus, right? On the cross, what did he cry out and pray? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, come on, we know they know what they're doing, right? They're killing people. But they don't understand what's going to happen to them. Not in any fullness. And this psalm describes that. Those outside of the kingdom, the oppressors of the church, have no end, just destruction. But those who go up to worship, who go to Zion lay hold of the kingdom of God, have life eternal. And that's the simple promise of Jesus. Come to me and I'll give you life, he says. That's still true today. Come and worship. Receive eternal life. It's still the promise for today. It's the great commission. It's different wording throughout the scriptures, but it's always the same idea. Come to Jesus and have life. But know this, you've got to count the cost. The pilgrim's life is one of Affliction. Jesus says, gives us a paraphrase it to you, but he says, imagine the man who's going to build a tower. He's got to calculate the cost or else he'll start building his tower and run out of money and bricks and people will look at the half-built home and mock him. He says, those who would follow me need to count the cost and be ready to go to the end. And yet, church, we know we can't do this in our own strength. We need his grace, his power, his strength to even stay faithful because it's easy to stop walking the pilgrim's path, isn't it? It gets really hard. And there are times we're going to want to give up on Jesus. But glory be to God, he does not give up on us. He keeps us because we cannot keep ourselves. We sang that in our songs today. Blessed be this sacred Jesus who keeps those who belong to him. And that's the rejoicing we have. God vindicates us. It proves we're in the right. And this psalm, as we come to a close, is really a picture of the Lord Jesus. Think about the life of Jesus. Jesus is the epitome of a life of affliction. From his very birth, they tried to kill him. Think of Herod trying to kill Jesus from the beginning, murdering all those children. Think of Jesus, uh, his own family rejecting him all through his days, thinking he's crazy. Think of this, Jesus' own people, the Jews, reject him, it says. Think of the words, the very description of the plowing made upon the back. Think of what the Romans did to Jesus when they scourged him. I don't know what you think about Mel Gibson, but the passion of the Christ did a pretty good job depicting what would have really happened to Christ when they beat his back into hamburger, rip his beard out, put a crown of thorns on his head and spit on his face and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And yet, how does our Savior respond to all that affliction? Forgive them because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And if that's you today, this is the King that you need to bow to, the one who came to save you the one who bore your sins on his back. Everything that happened to Jesus, you deserve. And if you do not join this pilgrim's path, there's no hope in life for you. That's the plainness of the gospel. You have to make that choice today because you are not promised tomorrow, my friend. You're not promised the second you leave this congregation, if there is tomorrow or even an hour after this for you. Think about that, y'all. What if this is the last time it's your chance to repent? And chance is an even ugly word, your last opportunity to bow the knee to Jesus. And those who have and you're feeling downcast, lay hold of the promises of God. He will keep you on the path. And if you're feeling weak and like you don't want to take another step forward, lay hold of Jesus again today. Tell him you're weak and you're tired and you don't want to go any further. Tell him that it's so hard to walk up this mountain to Jerusalem. It's so hard to go on this journey. Tell him, And then you realize he's at the forefront of our exodus. He's leading the band and he says, I'll carry you. As I carried your stripes on my back, I'll carry you on my back today. He promises us, church, he will not leave us or forsake us on this pilgrim's journey. But he promises the wicked they will be cut off. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. This psalm is a heavier psalm. It's one of affliction of the people and just destruction for those who hate Zion, who hate the church, who hate Jesus. Because to hate the church is to hate Jesus and to hate Jesus is to hate his people because we are his presence. And Lord, we didn't get to talk a lot about these things today, but man, have mercy on those who do not know you and who hate your people and who hate the church and who hate the word. We pray for your mercy upon them because that was us at one time, Jesus but you chose to have mercy and we pray that that mercy would continue. And you promise, you say you are, you're slow to exact judgment. Peter tells us that Jesus hasn't come back yet because God is slow and enduring and he's mightily patient. But for those Christians right now who are being put to death somewhere on this planet, the nameless, faceless people that will probably end up in a ditch somewhere, whether by beheading or a bullet through the head. I pray, Lord, that you would avenge their deaths. You say you will. And I pray that you would turn the persecutors into saints for your glory, so every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that you are Lord. And thank you, Lord, that the day will come when the time will be up and there will be no more murders, There will be no more persecution. There will be no more affliction for your people. And we'll be finally safe from all of our enemies. And we'll be with you forever. Write that hope on our heart, Lord God. Write that hope on us. Do your work today, Lord. Meet with us where we're at today. Lay, whatever was said this morning, I pray that everybody would grab something different. Speak to everybody individually as they need. But do work this morning, Lord Jesus. Seen or unseen, the altar will be open. We're looking forward to meet with you, Jesus. In Christ's name. we.